It is my privilege to stand in this pulpit today to speak a few words in behalf of the kingdom of heaven. We find ourselves in these moments again in a time of transition. The old year has but a few more days. The new one will be upon us by the time we meet next week, and you all will be remembering to write 2020 on your documents. I suspect that, as is usually the case, at least a few of us face this transitional time with a bit of incredulity. How could the year have passed so quickly? I was musing this week over Y2K. Some of you have been around long enough to remember that. And you realize that that's how many years ago now? Coming up 20 years since Y2K, which turned out to be not much at all. As a society, we are not much noted for our reflectiveness. We are a people who do and do and go and go, and when we're not doing and going, we are entertaining ourselves by a myriad means available to us. We don't often sit down to contemplate the trajectory of life. But I have noticed over the years that if we are reflective, it's most likely during transitional times. Sometimes at birthdays, people think about their lives for a few minutes at least. And when anniversaries come around, people think about life. I think it's particularly true that when one year rolls into the next, we think about life. And so I make bold to ask you a few questions this morning. What has been the trajectory of your life this past year? What things have you done that have made you glad? What things have you done that you wish you hadn't done? When you look back on the year, what changes do you wish you had made? Or perhaps the most consequential of all of these questions, has your journey this past year left the kind of record that you would like to have as your legacy? I happen to be of the opinion that it is difficult to easily compare one era against another. When you live in one era, you never fully understand it. And certainly to try and figure out how things were in past times is a challenge. I suspect that there have been times that were better than ours in some ways. I suspect there have been times worse than ours. But in thinking about this, there is one thing that comes to my mind that I think without a doubt is different, that makes our era different from those of other of the past. And that is the rate of change and the degree of change that we are experiencing. I was struck recently by an opinion of a, a man named Hans Jonas, who pointed out that ours is a time of rapid and radical change to the point that even the perceptions of reality itself are changing. Yes, there are many superficial changes that take place, technological changes, but Hans Jonas pointed out that perceptions of reality itself are shifting. And he makes his point by measuring change against a single lifespan, and here I share a rather long quote with you, something preachers are admonished not to do, but I think you can handle it. He wrote, if a man in the fullness of his days, at the end of his life, can pass on the wisdom of his experience to those who grow up after him, 
if what he has learned in his youth, added to but not discarded in his maturity, still serves him in his old age, and is still worth teaching the then young, then his was not an age of revolution. The world into which his children enter is still his world, not because it is entirely unchanged, but because the changes that did occur were gradual and limited enough for him to absorb them into his initial stock and keep abreast of them. And here comes the challenging part. If, however, a man in his advancing years has to turn to his children or his grandchildren to have them tell him what the present is about, if his own acquired knowledge and understanding no longer avail him, if at the end of his days he finds himself to be obsolete rather than wise, then we may term the rate and scope of change that thus overtook him revolutionary. I suspect you would agree with me that by that standard, ours is an age of perpetual revolution. Ours is a time when the very institutions that have for so long provided stability and helped us make sense of our living are now disordered or in decline and decay. I was thinking about marriage. That's an institution that comes from the mists of antiquity. It was always understood to be a solemn agreement made between a man and a woman for the purposes of establishing a family as the foundational unit of society into which children were to be born, the next generation nurtured and reared. Today, marriage is in disarray. There are many, many, at least 10 competing ideas of what marriage is. And not only that, do you know that less than 50% of Americans today are married? It's viewed as an institution that's not worthy of its, of its history. I was thinking about the institutions of government, and I want to be careful here. But when I think about the Senate, and when I think about the House, and when I think about the Supreme Court, and when I think about the presidency, I am not seeing too much stability at the moment. Maybe you'll agree with me when I say that. The idea of nation states, ideas that there are boundaries around which uh, nations form themselves is, is becoming obsolete. Even the idea of male and female as indicative of the most basic division within humanity, even that now is thought to be on a continuum. And thinking about those foundational changes, the, the great question raised by the psalmist in Psalm 11 comes to mind. He said, when the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? I would update that and put it another way, in revolutionary times, in times of revolutionary change, where is a person well advised to place their confidence? And in response to that question, I want very quickly to say that I think there is a good and enduring proposition that has a long record of being able to hold fast those who live in tumultuous times. It is a well-known proposition, it is a well-tried one, namely that there is a God in heaven who has come down and acted within history in ways that ordinary humans have seen and understood, thereby giving humans both a knowledge of God's person and a knowledge of his plan for planet Earth and its inhabitants. I advocate this position because I think it's a good one for several reasons. First of all, it anchors reality out in eternity, far beyond the single lifespan of a human. And I don't know much about navigation, but it seems to me that distant and reliable reference points are very useful when navigating because the odds of miscalculating an angle of reference is diminished by distance. I am somebody who's read a lot of sailing books in my life, and I always smile at the the 
sailors of, of yesteryear, when sailing up from the southern hemisphere, they would rejoice when they could finally see the North Star far, far away from them, but an accurate point of reference that could lead them even to the destination they desired. And secondly, this is a good proposition because it anchors reality in some of the events of history where it is not so much affected by human speculation. If you look at religious ideas, some of them are founded on personal mystical experiences that one person has but cannot be replicated in the life of another. Some religious beliefs are the result of prolonged theological speculation. And I am something of a theologian. I like theological speculation, but I understand that some of it goes adrift. Some of religious beliefs are founded on philosophical reflection. And some today would like religion to be founded on the findings of science. But I want to point out to this congregation today that the Christian faith, while it is aided by some of those other things, is founded not so much on human reflection, but on the great acts of God in history. We believe today because people like ourselves encountered Theos, God. And they came away with the undying opinion that it was indeed God they had encountered, holding to their convictions in the face of ridicule and opposition and even death. That's why Peter wrote to the believers of his day, we did not follow cleverly devised fables when we told you of the power and the coming of our Lord. It's why Paul wrote to the Corinthians, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages have come. Both of these individuals in writing to the early Christians pointed out the fact that it is historical events that anchor the Christian faith. I think it's fair to say that one of the best ways to look at Scripture and understand it is to see it as the residual collection of the record left by those who encountered God in history, who not only saw God's actions but reflected on them and wrote them down. I like very much the description of the Bible I found some years ago. The Bible described as a plurivocal, polyphonic, multilinear anthology, a magnificently irreducible book that contains as many rhetorical forms and voices as we have temperaments and experience. Sounds fitting for an academic environment, doesn't it? A plurivocal, polyphonic, multilinear anthology. You all should have said amen after you heard that. But here the Bible is a residual collection. It's not an exhaustive collection. There are admissions in the Bible that not everything is written there. Paul said we know in part. And John in writing his gospel toward the end said that Jesus did many other things that are not written here. So it's, it's a residual collection, not an exhaustive one. It is what remains of the record and the reflections of humans of the interaction between God and humanity written down and preserved by the believing community over the ages. I say again, not everything is recorded there, but enough is recorded there. The Bible, I often say to my students, is not exhaustive, but it is sufficient. And it is a work that I think we ought to look through, not just at. It's full of stories that we ought to look through in order to catch glimpses of eternity. The primary truth of that book is that there is a God who has inhabited eternity, who has acted within history in ways that human beings can see and understand and be captivated by. This is something we learn 
from the very first few words of Scripture. I have in the last few months been thinking about the very beginning of Scripture. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and you know the story goes on. In these few verses at the beginning of Scripture, we learn some foundational truths. First of all, that reality consists of two realms, that of the Creator and that of the creature. I think there are about six or seven different views of how reality is construed, but this one is distinctive. There is the realm of the Creator, and there is the realm of those things that are created. It also tells us that life on this earth had a beginning. It tells us that our origin was not by chance, but by design, in the case of humans, by particular design and specific action of Almighty God. It tells us that the existence in the material world is not a diminished or evil existence. If you read the thoughts of the Greek world, they believed that the material world was somehow diminished. It was carnal. And so we as humans had this terrible uh, affliction of carnality. You don't see that in the story of creation. Both the realms of the spirit and material are good. And perhaps most interestingly, in this story we read how God mediated to his creation some capacities of its own so that not everything that happens on planet Earth is the direct will of God. Now I know some people will want to meet with me afterwards to talk about that. But the truth is the story tells us that God created systems within his creation that do not need his direct supervision. God does not have to specifically create a thunderstorm. When, when parents decide to have children, it is not an act of God directly. There are many things that are built into the systems of earth that God does not have to superintend, which, by the way, has some profound significance. Because we also learn from this story that human beings are given enough, a measure of real autonomy enough that we can make consequential decisions. And perhaps you have learned by now, I hope you have, that there is a connection between decision and consequence. It tells us here that God created male and female for the purposes of companionship and procreation. It tells us that our origins were pristine. As I've thought of these verses, there's information enough here to orient a life well by just reading it and adopting the picture of reality it provides. And you know how the story goes from the very positive and engaging start. The story of the Bible moves on into tragedy, where we find God's creation is damaged in some senses, ruined much to God's dismay. And hard on the heels of that story, embedded in it even, we discover God's intention to redeem and restore his creation. For there in Genesis 3, there is an embryonic promise in cryptic language talking about the seed of a woman and the seed of the serpent, how the one would triumph over the other. A promise, an embryonic promise of redemption. And I think it's fair to say, fellow believers, that from the point of the giving of that promise until this very day, all of God's actions in history have been with a view to redeeming and restoring his creation. And I would even point out that eschatology, the doctrine of last things, is anchored way back in that promise. People get very worried about what the Bible says about the end of the world. It's nothing more than the fulfillment of the promise made way back in Genesis, that God intends to redeem and restore that which has been broken. 
And if I were to go on an excursion tracing the great acts of God in history, I would move on to Genesis 12, where is found the story of God's calling of this man, Abraham, a man whom God called to leave off his settled living. And he said to him, Abraham, I want you to go and I want you to wander over the face of the earth and I will t follow me to a place that I will show you. And in heeding that call, Abraham became the prototypical pilgrim. A pilgrim is somebody who is anchored by what God has already done, but who lives in hopes of being in on what God is yet going to do. And I drop a little word to you here, fellow believers, that taking up even today, taking up following after God brings this dynamic into our own lives. If you become a follower after God, you will be very settled and overjoyed by the evidences of God's work in your life, but you will remain unsettled in a, by a longing in your heart to see what God is yet going to do. That's the nature of living as a believer. And looking at the great God, acts of God in history would take us also to the Exodus, that collection of mighty acts of God that sprang ancient Israel from bondage in Egypt and took them through a desert land, through a great trials and tribulations to the promised land, along the way forming them into a nation. And I would not neglect to notice that in the middle of that journey when they were encamped at Mount Sinai, that God came down upon the mountain in power and great glory that so frightened the people that they asked for an intermediary. They said to Moses, you go and talk to God, and then you come back and tell us what God said, and we'll believe it as if God had spoken. And so the office of prophet was born, an office that has left open in every age the expectation that someone might be appointed to arise who speaks for God. Looking at the great acts of God in history, we could then skip over the centuries and come to the New Testament, where we come to, that, to what Christians believe to be the most notable act of God in history, an event, the arrival of which was inaugurated by the appearance out of the wilderness of a bright-eyed, sharp-tongued, fearless prophet who marched right into the middle of the orthodoxy of his day to announce that the whole edifice was about to come down. Now I'm particularly intrigued by the way Luke deals with this in the third chapter of his gospel. If you read that chapter, you will discover it begins with a listing of all the important people of the era. Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, Herod the Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, Tetrarch of Idumea and Trachonitis. And the list ends with Annas and Caiaphas, the leaders of the church of the day. And when you read that list and the way it's formulated, you come quite easily to the conclusion that if God were going to do anything in that era, anything at all, that he would work through these people, through the big and powerful structures that they presided over. And so the following verse after this comes as a truly shocking one, for it says, having listed all the important people of the era, the next verse says that the word of the Lord came to John the Baptist in the wilderness. Who? John the Baptist? And here we see an example in history where God totally bypassed the structures of the day to show up in some wild and lonely place where nobody expected him to be at work at all. And I see here a tacit warning to all of us who want to set up orthodoxies and require that God work within the parameters of our orthodoxies. God, fellow believers, will not be 
corralled or boxed in by human devising and humanly created edifices. You create some orthodox box in which you demand God to operate, and more than likely, He will surprise you by showing up in a place you never imagined Him to be. John the Baptist came to announce the greatest act of God in history, again a very surprising one that began with the birth of a baby in an out-of-the-way place to a teenaged peasant mother and a craftsman father. And here we must be astonished again, for, for by what stretch of whose imagination would we conclude in the first place that God would come in human form? But more than that, that he would be born of all things to a poor teen newlywed mother in an obscure place where she and her husband had not even a place to lay their heads. Not an auspicious beginning to the greatest act of God in history. But you and I are invited not to think only of the birth of Jesus, but of his life and his ministry. It has been my opportunity on several occasions to stand on a hill that looks over the northern part of the Sea of Galilee, and you can stand up there and look out and see the curvature of that small um, lake. I don't know why it was ever called a sea, but it was. See. And you realize in standing there, <coughs> you realize in standing there that most of Jesus' life and his ministry unfolded in that five or six mile stretch. And yet he ranks today as the most influential person who ever walked planet Earth. A ministry that unfolded in a small region over a short period of time that ended with a bogus trial and a conviction that led to an ignominious death on a cross. If you've read it all about ancient times, you know that crucifixion, death by crucifixion, defined ignominy. A Roman citizen could not be crucified. Only traitors and slaves and followers and non-persons could be crucified. And yet we know that from that ignominy God has wrought redemption, for Jesus did not stay in the tomb, but rose from death to life. Read carefully the passages about the resurrection, and you will see that all the precautions that the authorities took to make sure that he was dead and gone and buried, never to come again, only served to, to provide evidence that he is in fact alive again. You read about the soldiers running into town to tell their prisoner had escaped. And when you realize that doing that was a, a tantamount to a death sentence for the Romans had a very simple policy that if you were guarding a prisoner and the prisoner got away, they simply took your life in place of the prisoner. Think of the payment of hush money. Think of the empty tomb first seen by the women who came to embalm him. And then perhaps most engaging of all, the numerous occasions, post-resurrection appearances of Jesus, one according to the Apostle Paul, in the presence of 500 people who were all gathered together. And I love the way the Apostle saw, says in his day, many of whom are still alive. In other words, if you doubt that in his day, you could go and interview the people who were present. Because Jesus is alive, we have hope for he is available and able to bring to fulfillment the plan of God, both in the lives of individuals and in the cosmic sense, finally defeating evil itself. This is the hope we have as Christians, all founded on the belief that there is a God in heaven who has acted multiple times in history for the purpose of redeeming and restoring creation and those who are in it. It strikes me that you and I live at a time and in a place where it seems not so easy to see the works of God anymore. 
We hear of great and wondrous things that God is doing in other places, but where we live, Christian belief is in decline. There is now incontrovertible evidence that in these United States there is a great shifting, a rather rapid shifting away from Christianity, away from theism. And the younger a person is, the more likely they are to abandon the faith of our, our forebears. Secularism is the new and vibrant religion that spouts the claim that it has an elegant neutrality, an untruth of uh, magnificent proportions, in my opinion. And we forget that by departing church and faith that we are doing great harm to ourselves and I would argue to our culture. You see, the church is the one entity that has historically provided a nation with a citizenry that has a collective moral sense that causes each citizen to govern themselves. That is the internal constraint that governs them based on the issues of conscience they have acquired. As we collectively dump church I fear we set our society on a path toward a culture that has no agreed upon moral parameters at all. Everybody will indeed be doing their own thing. We forget also that church, more than most other entities in our land, has provided a sense of community. While working on my thoughts for today, I thought of numerous people, some of whom you know and perhaps whom you are, who in spite of good decisions in your lives have found yourselves alone and family is gone for some reason, you have been abandoned, whatever the case may be, you are alone in the world in spite of the good decisions you made. And yet, because you are part of a believing community, you are known and you are loved. The abandonment of church means we are developing a society of ungoverned, ungovernable, and very lonely and disconnected people. And so I cite some of the great works of God to you this morning for the same reason the ancient writer of the book of Hebrews did. I don't know when last you spent some time in Hebrews 11th chapter, but if you haven't read it recently, I would invite you to devote some time this afternoon to reading it. It's a magnificent chapter. The writer of Hebrews begins by talking about Abel. He charts a panoramic view of history of the faithful. He talks about Abel and Enoch and Abraham, and the story goes on and on, listing individuals of note, Moses, Abraham, and so forth, citing some of the great acts of God in history. But I like the way he comes to a conclusion because he finally says, and what more shall I say, for time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah of David, Samuel, and the prophets. He gives up detailing the lives of individuals and just lists them and then goes on to talk about some of the great things that they endured and accomplished. And you get down to verse 38, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. I think of these people, many of them down through history, who lived sometimes in difficult times and difficult experiences, and yet they persevered. And all of this to make the point that I want to make most to you today. It comes in the beginning of chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, since we have so many examples of God's actions in history, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, 
And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Times of transition and tumult are difficult times in which to endure. But thinking about this, I have to say to you that this is not a time to grow weary of living a life of faith. This is not the time to abandon hope. This is not a time to give up on God. In fact, as I think of all the acts of God in history, I have to say to you that there is no time to grow weary of living a life in faith. There is no time because there is every indication that the God who set out to redeem and restore his creation is going to do so. Put another way, the fact that God has already acted in history is reason for us to have confidence that he's going to keep acting in history until the day his kingdom comes in its fullness. You see, the hope of Jesus coming again is anchored by the fact that he has already come once. The hope of seeing the dead in Christ raised back to life is anchored by the fact that Jesus has himself experienced resurrection. The expectation of seeing a kingdom of righteousness fully established on earth is anchored by the fact that it is here in part already. And you put this all together and you understand the genius of the words of that old Negro spiritual, don't get weary, children. There's a great camp meeting in the promised land. Anchor your life, my brother, my sister, in the foundational proposition of Scripture. Orient your life to the great proposition that there is a God in heaven who has acted in history in ways that tell of his person and his plan, that whatever the new year brings you, you will find yourself doing well enough. And keep ever in mind as you journey that in the economy of God, the small, the insignificant, Even that which looks like tragedy and misfortune often ends up working for good, moving things to the day of redemption. Many years ago, I went sailing with a friend of mine. He was the head elder of a church I was pastoring, and he had a nice sailboat, and he thought it his responsibility to take the pastor sailing a couple times a year. I always thought well of him for that. And so one bright day, we set out from Noank, Connecticut. We sailed south into Long Island Sound through the Narrows, out into Block Island Sound. And across the rollicking waves, it was a very pleasant sail. We had a a wind from the stern quarter. We were on a broad reach. For those of you who know about sailing, the waves were kind of four to six feet. We came at evening to the long, narrow entrance into Block Harbor. And we sailed up there, and we're going to spend the night there. The captain, the owner of the vessel, thought we'd just anchor, ride to our own anchor, because it's cheaper to do that. that. But as he looked at the map, um, he discovered that the word was that the mud at the bottom of the harbor didn't have very good holding holding power. And having a rather sizable mortgage on his boat, that's what he called it, he decided to rent from the marina. The marina had buoys that were anchored to 1,500-pound cast-iron mushroom anchors down buried in the mud. And so it was that he nosed up to a big red ball, and I went forward with the boat hook and pulled over the bow to one inch, 
lines with chafing gear and loops and slipped them over six-inch stainless steel cleats that were bolt through bolted on the foredeck. And so we settled in. We went for a walk around the island for a while. And then as evening came, we dined sumptuously for the man was a good cook. If you ever go sailing, by the way, make sure you have a good cook with you. And then we, after commending ourselves to the care of God, we went to sleep. It's a very pleasant thing to sleep on a boat, the gentle motion. But about two o'clock in the morning, things changed. We began to hear the halyards slapping against the aluminum mast, bang, 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 and the boat began to pitch and throw around, and we became alarmed, and the captain and I both jumped out of our beds and went to the hatch to look out, and what a sight met our eyes. There was wind blasting, spray blowing around, spume, spindrift. It was a violent scene out there, boats tossing to and fro. But then we noticed something very interesting. And every time our boat swung to port, or to starboard, I should say, the movement to starboard was met with a corresponding movement to port, which in the sailor's world tells you that you're still being held by something at the bow. We went back to sleep that night, realizing that from our foredeck, those two big one-inch lines went over the bow onto the buoy, which was anchored by a, a chain all the way down to a mushroom anchor buried in the mud where neither wind nor wave could affect it. That to me, friends, is a life lesson. We found out the next day that a front had come through. The wind had been blowing between 55 and 60 miles an hour and fully a third of the boats in that harbor were up on the marshes on the other side of the, the harbor the next morning. But we were there safe and secure simply because we had attached ourselves to a reliable point of reference. And so enough from a preacher today. As the old year goes away and the new one comes, may you have courage and fortitude and hope. May you see the hand of God in your life and let us look to see the hand of God in our church and in our world.